0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory.
1: Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind the headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman.
2: I'm Nathan Connolly.
1: And I'm Brian Ballow.
2: If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of a topic that's been in the news. Earlier this month, inmates around the country banded together in a national prison strike to protest poor conditions and labor exploitation, referring to the American prison system as modern-day slavery. Although the protest happened only a few days ago, the issue of having an incarcerated population as cheap labor is
0: far from a recent development. Back in 2005... I had the chance to hear from members of a prison work crew and learned about their experiences working for paltry pay on the side of the road in Virginia.
3: My name is Corporal Horace Bruce from Shawford Regional Jail. I'm the uh, supervisor for the road gang. Today we is on Avon Street um, cleaning up. My first question for you is, is this... A punishment
0: or is this a reward? I mean a I, I drive-by I think punishment but then it
3: occurs to me this might be better than sitting in jail. It is. The guys enjoy coming out. I mean they, they love the weather, they love the, the scenery. Um, th- this is actually a, a gift. So um, what have these guys done to uh, earn this gift? Well depending on the years that they got, if, if they were sentenced for three years or less they can actually come on board. A lot of guys can't come on due to the fact they got over three years and and their crimes. Uh, like uh, cocaine stuff, they can't come out. Uh, assault charges, they can't come out. These guys right here is mainly uh, child supports, uh, DUI type guys, so they can actually come out uh-huh. and work. Um, we are a history show,
0: and certainly over the course of history, one form of punishment for people who have committed crimes uh, has been kind of public humiliation, public shame. So putting people in stocks, and we've heard about the scarlet letter for adulterers. Is there anything <laughs> about making these guys wear orange and having them along this pretty well-traveled street here that that entails humiliation? Are they
3: embarrassed? No, no. Actually, the orange is, um, is an indication of, of the best... Inmates that we have in the building. The worst inmates, I should I say worst, the guys that can come out, they were black and white. These guys right here were oranges, meaning that they are trustees and they can be trusted. i tell you, what, I'll go get one. All right.
0: I really appreciate you talking to us today. I want to get a view from your perspective of what this is all about. Uh, At least Corporal Bruce uh, says that this is a privilege to be able to come out here, get a little fresh air. Now, he's carrying that big stick and has a gun, so I understand you have to think carefully about how you answer this question. But uh, what what is it like for you to, is this a punishment uh, or is this a reward for you?
4: Mentally, being away from my family, just being incarcerated, period, that is punishment, you know what I'm saying? But... As far as being out here, nah, man, it's a privilege, man. I love yeah. it. I get to come out here and get fresh air, you know what I'm saying? Sunlight. A lot of people don't have that privilege, you know? They're, they're confined to a small space all day, and I look at a whole bunch of other people that just like them, I mean, I mean, I don't know.
0: We're standing out here by a road, people are driving by. How do you feel about the public aspect of this? You, are, are you ashamed, or do you see people you know sometimes? Anyone ever ask someone to get you a cheeseburger on the way, or
4: you know, uh, what, how does that how does that work? Sometimes, sometimes. See, I'm from Alamar County, so sometimes it depends on the area we're in. I do feel a little shame, but I mean, this program takes very good care of me. You know what I'm saying? I get paid for what I do. So I don't have to call home, ask for money or anything like that. So basically, I said they're going to work, so am I. Can you I a-
0: can I ask you how much you get paid for
4: this? Uh, we get paid three
0: dollars a day, fifteen dollars a week. Uh huh. Can I ask you how long you've been in prison?
4: Uh, I've been locked up going on twenty-two months.
0: And may I ask you when you think you're going to get
4: out? I will get out December nineteenth, God willing.
0: May I ask you, and you don't have to answer this, what what you're in for?
4: Um, I'm here for a violation and driving on revoked license.
0: I see. Seems like a yeah. lot of time for uh, <laughs> a revoked license.
4: Yeah, well, after, uh, after they see you for a couple of times, you know, more than I twice, see. then I, I they see. tend to lay the hammer down on you. So. Yeah. Do you think all this time you've
0: spent in prison is, is going to have any effect at all?
4: I'll <sighs> tell you what. The last few times I came to jail, I, I didn't want to change my behavior. After this time... I can't do it no more.
0: What's different?
4: Age. Yeah. I've I've gotten older. I've matured. I'm 30 years old.
0: 30 years old.
4: Yep. In my adolescent days, I didn't really care. You know, I ripped around the streets, didn't really care much. But now I have kids. I got three children. So they need a father figure, you know what I'm saying? And I got to be a role model. I don't want my sons to go through what I've had to go through.
0: Could I ask you how often you get to see your kids?
4: Uh... I don't
0: I don't see you don't see him. No, I don't. Is that the toughest thing about being in prison? Yeah. Um,
4: Yeah.
0: I can imagine. Well, I really appreciate you talking to me today and I, I wish you the best of luck.
4: Thank you.
1: Nathan, the prison strike began August 21st and ended September 9th, and I gather that those dates are of historical significance.
2: They are. Um, the date of the 21st of August 1971 is the anniversary of George Jackson's killing in San Quentin, California, a very important activist and theorist, really, of prisons. And the 9th of September is when the Attica Prison Rebellion began after the killing of Jackson in September 9th of that same year of 1971. Incidentally, the 21st of August in 1831 is also the anniversary of Nat Turner's rebellion. And so, again, the idea that the strike is in some ways about rebelling against wage slavery, I, th- I think, is also meant to hearken to that date.
1: Hmm. Now, we just heard Brian's interview of about a decade ago with that prison work crew this year that the prison strikers were protesting the practice of using prisoners as a kind of cheap or free labor who could be farmed out. And that's obviously, Brian, I think, a very long story here in the U.S., Yeah, it sure is, Joanne. Uh,
0: It really goes back as far as penitentiaries go. Uh, Work in prison and the value of work in prison, even before the Civil War, uh, was really quite important to a number of local economies. Um, At the end of the Civil War, 1865, uh, it's estimated that the value of work done in prisons was almost $30 million. Now, Mm. that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's worth billions of dollars uh,
1: in today's economy. Um, I think running alongside that, certainly for part of the long span of American history, is the idea that somehow or other prison can reform you, that it's a a place where you go to be improved Mm. or reformed. You're absolutely right,
0: Joanne. In fact, I want to share with you the name of one of my favorite societies in all of American history—it's the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons. Uh, it started in the 1780s, and Ben Franklin was a member at one point. But I'm going to throw it right back at you because something tells me you know more <laughs> about the Enlightenment ideas that informed this kind of thinking <laughs> than I do.
1: Indeed, the the idea of using prison to reform the people who are within that prison is kind of born of the enlightenment and, and born of this idea that um, the, the society that you're living in and, and its government can really shape your character. And so the idea then of prisons is if you create somehow an environment that will shape the character of the people within it, that in some way or another you can reform these individuals and then release them out into society.
0: Well, Joanne, you've got your enlightenment and I've got my experts. Uh, But they're really connected uh, in this idea of rehabilitation because by Mm -hmm. the 20th century, uh, social scientists, psychologists, educators, sociologists, they all come along and say, you know, we can make prisons a place where people can be rehabilitated and turned back into good citizens. And uh, one of the models of that was started in Massachusetts, no surprise there, the Norfolk Prison Colony. Uh, And the prisoners wore regular uniforms Mm -hmm. there. Uh, The prison was staffed with psychiatrists and educators. And the prisoners themselves actually had a role in governing uh, the prison. And perhaps its most famous prisoner was Malcolm X. uh, And he really... Uh, got experience in public speaking by joining the prison debate societies. Hmm.
1: Now, you, you bring up Malcolm X, which then leads me to want to ask another question, which is um, there's also obviously a tradition of prison protest, too. There is.
2: There is. And, you know, I think we have a, a way of— realizing now just how important these prisons were for, really really unintentionally so, as places of political education, people finding ways to work the system, to figure out legal channels for getting reform or trying to make movements that are built around people sharing legal documents and conferring about their rights. And so, you know, the, the Nation of Islam was one of these organizations that had a large and vibrant life inside prisons of people learning how to make petitions to the system and try to initiate reform, but even the civil rights movement as a whole has a a history that runs parallel from the direct action moments in the streets to the moments behind bars, trying to secure better conditions. And so, you know, the the fact that you have someone like Malcolm X on the one hand, but also someone like Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King or any number of activists who spend time behind bars who then also are able to have a really unique vantage point from which to then raise critiques about the justness of American society. It almost goes without saying that one really gets a sense of what democracy is. Democracy is worth from behind the bars of a cage.
1: Now, Nathan, I love your comment about how you can tell so much about American society by viewing it through the bars of a prison cell, because, you know, it's, it's hard, I think, today to look at prisons with any kind of positivity, mm. given where we are, but, you know, in Early America, when I think about prisons, I, I think about this moment in time when um, insane asylums and prisons and right. any other numbers of kinds of places where people were sheltered and kept if they were problematic in some way. There was an assumption, a kind of optimistic assumption in early America that if you framed them the right way and built them the right way and sort of made it so that the environment that people were living in was just right that it Mm -hmm. would sort of stamp Mm -hmm. their character in some kind of a way. I'm wondering when in the 19th century does it really make that flip? Like when is that abandoned? When does it really become, when does the forced labor component of it really become more prevalent?
2: Well, well by a lot of measures, it it begins after the end of Reconstruction. Um, Mm. You know, particularly in the South, you see, a real inversion of the uses of formal state incarceration. Initially, when you think about the incarcerated population of the post-bellum period, most of them aren't really African American because they're newly freed from the plantation. Only very quickly, in the wake of expanding surveillance and other kinds of responses to disenfranchisement, do you begin to see, you know, people of color, and particularly African Americans, begin to balloon in the prison population in the South, mm. and they actually begin to outstrip you know, their white counterparts in, in that particular place. In society. And so, the, the very famous or somewhat infamous formulation of, of slavery by another name is really a post-bellum, really post-Reconstruction problem. And in that case, absolutely, rehabilitation is not the issue. It's about driving down the cost of labor. It's about finding ways to keep politically uh, disempowered the communities from which these people come. And in some ways, you know, keeping a sense of order that is monitored by the law enforcement state. And that's going to be paying all kinds of dividends for the folks who are running the businesses that draw in prison labor and the folks who are running for office safely because
0: most of the population is disenfranchised. And the prisoners that Nathan was talking about, African-American men in late 19th century America, would have been citizens if they hadn't mm-hmm. been imprisoned. And I have to feel uh, that there was a lot more at stake uh, when you are imprisoning would-be citizens, or I think it's fair to say stripping citizenship from African-Americans. So I have a story for you guys.
2: I'll, I'll tell you a story that my, that my grandfather tells me. And it's about his time as a kid. He's not in the United States, he's a kid in Jamaica, and he lives right off the water in Kingston, and he lives literally a stone's throw from the outside of the wall of the Kingston Penitentiary on Tower Street. And you have to understand that in in Jamaica, the people who live on the waterfront are the poorest of the poor. So the affluent live in the hills and the poor live down by the water with the fishmongers and by the oil in the the harbor and all of that. And he tells a story about being a kid and just as the sun is going down and the colors on the bricks of of the prison on Tower Street are beginning to turn, everyone is standing outside the prison walls and they're waiting and they're waiting. And suddenly over the walls come these giant loaves of cornbread, still warm, over the walls, and to all of the impoverished people who are living outside the prison. And crowds are gathered around, and they're scooping up these loaves off the ground. Some are catching them in midair to the sound of cheers. And it's this huge mystery about what exactly is happening inside the prison to make it possible for this bread to come out and to be feeding the poor folks on the waterfront in Kingston. And my grandfather tells the stories oftentimes with with tears in his eyes because for him, it's a testament of just how poor the folks were on the outside, that the prisoners on the inside were aware of this and basically providing them with surplus food that was all being spent because of this massively bloated carceral budget that the British colonial officials had in Jamaica at the time. And for me, it it, it strikes me as, as a really powerful metaphor for a lot of the really good and powerful sustenance that can come from prisons when we listen to what prisoners say when you think about you know the poetry of incarcerated children or all of the great thinkers whose writings in prison have moved you know forward a whole bunch of fields that we you know consider to be our own whether history or anything else and so i don't know i, I just wanted to 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 think for a minute about how we would all be much poorer and much worse off if there weren't folks in prison who hadn't lost their humanity and decided to share some of that stuff that they had inside with us, you know?
0: Well, and I, what it comes to my mind, Nathan, and what's so poignant for me in your story is that direct connection between the people inside the prison and the people outside the prison. And mm-hmm. too often, I think we want to lock people up and throw away the key. We want to forget about that connection. We want to forget about that vision from within the bars, as you talked about earlier, uh, that really can make us all think more carefully about what it means to live in a so-called free society.
1: As well as losing their liberty, of course, people in prison sacrifice their privacy. Today, surveillance cameras monitor inmates every move. But long before those cameras were invented, prisons were designed so that guards could keep a perpetual watch on the inmates inside. And that got us thinking
0: about panopticons. Before you Google it, let me tell you that these are circular buildings where a single watchman stationed in the center could see every prisoner inside. He can't see everyone at once, of course, but inmates can't tell when they're being observed. So in theory, they behave as though they're being watched all the time. The concept was dreamed up by the 18th century British philosopher Jeremy Bentham. And there are still about half a dozen panopticon prisons in operation, mostly in Europe. In late 2016, officials in Illinois closed a prison
2: modeled on the panopticon design. It was known as the Roundhouse, it was a giant circular building with several hundred cells stacked four stories high and a large guard tower in the middle. The Roundhouse was built nearly a century ago, about 30 miles from Chicago. It was chaotic, cockroach-infested, and deafening.
5: It's akin to walking into a packed Roman Colosseum in the days of gladiators in the height of the action.
1: This is Joseph Dole, an inmate at the Stateville Correctional Center in Illinois, which includes the Roundhouse, He says it certainly achieved its purpose.
5: Guys would not only have the guards watching them from the tower, but any number of the 200 or so other guys in cells across from them could be looking out of their cells into yours.
1: Dole never served time in the roundhouse, or as inmates called it, the F-house. But he knows inmates who did. So he talked to them and asked them what it was like, and here are some of their thoughts.
5: While I've walked through F house, I was never personally housed there. So I put this question to two classmates who I know have spent significant periods of time housed there. Raul Dorado, who spent many months in F house, told me how there's no natural privacy in the roundhouse. The cell is completely illuminated. Not only the guards, but everyone can see every detail in your cell. It has a psychologically detrimental effect on your psyche. It feels like you are always being watched especially during the most vulnerable moments of performing your bodily functions. Some level of privacy can be created by draping a sheet or blanket over the bars and casing the window in the back of the cell to block light coming in, but even then you question it and suspect that everyone can still see you. Moreover, hanging such a sheet is a disciplinary offense. Even if no one can see you, the damage is already done. The idea is inextricably lodged in your subconscious, making you not only your worst critic, but also your own warden. Jamal Bakker similarly informed me that the constant noise also worked to deprive guys of any type of privacy. Doors constantly being kicked, people yelling at the top of their lungs, roaches crawling all over the walls. There was no escaping it. I often felt confused and unable to focus. I struggled to concentrate on even the smallest task. I couldn't sleep well at all and I'd often stay awake just to enjoy a moment of relative quiet during the night between 12 to 4 a.m. before the rampage of noise started again. Young women who were also part of a DePaul University inside outside college course taught in the grounds of Stateville Correctional Center at the dilapidated school building were allowed to tour F house before it closed down. They were visibly shaken afterwards A few of them were in tears. They related that one of the most disturbing aspects was that the first floor of 60 or so cells, which is where guys who were in disciplinary segregation were held, was just silhouettes of humans. They listened as a number of them kicked on cell doors while others screamed obscenities or yelled out either in pain or requesting assistance or simply for attention. They said it felt like being in a zoo or an insane asylum, and then they felt guilty for thinking so, knowing that many of them truly are mentally ill and are often pushed to such behavior by the combination of unconstitutional living conditions, mistreatment by staff, and a denial of adequate mental health treatment.
0: Joseph Dole is currently serving a life without parole sentence at Statesville Correctional Center, a maximum security state prison for men in Crest Hill, Illinois. He's also the author of A Costly American Hatred,
2: For some
6: people, a way to cope with incarceration comes with a pen. I've often heard of prison cells, and dreary things suppose they were, where gloom and darkness only dwells to fill the prisoner with despair. And such they are to carnal hearts, who have no savior and no god. The day rolls slow and night departs and leaves them still a drear abode. But glory to the eternal King, who brought me to this little cell. Sweet pleasure here I find can spring, for here my God delights to dwell.
2: That's an excerpt from the poem, My Cell, number one. It was written by abolitionist George Thompson in the 1840s, while he was imprisoned in Missouri. Thompson is one of many throughout history to document the hardships of incarceration through personal writings. The person you heard read that poem is Seth Michelson. He's led poetry workshops in prisons for two decades. A few years ago, Michelson started going to a maximum security juvenile detention center. And there, he led workshops with undocumented and unaccompanied immigrant children. Michelson recently released a book of poems written by the kids inside the center. He says poetry became a creative outlet for them and created
6: a unique bond within the group. Poetry is particularly available. To all of the participants, whether literate or otherwise, and according to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, these young teens uh, are range in age from 13 to 17 years old and average a second grade education. Uh, many were orphaned at a young age and grew up on some of the most violent streets of the hemispheric Americas, and didn't have the literary, let's say, or academic. Uh, self-confidence to think of themselves as poets, but were quickly disabused of that by their peers and uh, with a little bit of encouragement from me in realizing, like the Mexican aphorism says, de poeta y locos tenemos un poco. So of the poet and the crazy man, we all have a little bit and saying, let's, uh, let's all uh, access those things. You don't need to be literate to be a poet. Uh, and especially the... Prison writing histories tell us across the globe uh, that that literacy is is not a foundational necessity uh, of partaking in these important, nourishing, transformational communities uh, of writers uh, in situations of immobilization and incarceration.
2: I spoke more with Michelson about the history of prison writing in the U.S., we discuss some poets who have written about incarceration and parallels Michelson sees to the words of the immigrant children in detention centers today. We first discuss the poet Etheridge Knight. He was convicted of robbery in 1960 and spent eight years in the Indiana State Prison. Upon his release, he published a collection of works about his time incarcerated. Here, Michelson's reading Knight's piece called
6: To Make a Poem in Prison. It's hard to make a poem in prison. The air lends itself not to the singer. The seasons creep by unseen and spark no fresh fires. Soft words are rare and drunk, drunk against the clang of keys. Wide eyes stare fat zeros and plea only for pity. Pity is not for the poet. Yet poems must be primed. Here is not even sadness for singing. Not even a beautiful rage, rage. No birds are winging. The air is empty of laughter. And love? Why, love has flown. Love has gone to glitten.
4: Hmm.
2: So, to what extent does that poem in Knight's words... Echo some of what you've observed through your workshops?
6: Well, it speaks to something that I've experienced in the workshops and that also pervades a lot of uh, the writing coming from prisons and writing of and about prisons. And in the particular case of Dreaming America, in the workshops that I had the privilege to enjoy with these very special young writers, some of the best young writers I've ever worked with, you can see that despair. Uh, but here's a poem by a young child in one of the two maximum security detention centers in the United States for undocumented unaccompanied youth called Olvido in Spanish. And it translated as, I forget. Without reason to exist, I often forget that I am real. And this makes ache the soul that I don't have or that can't find me as I wander somewhere else. So you can see a a certain... Uh, level of existential despair and that despair pervades the poems in the book and in the workshop and in the oeuvres of so many or the works of writing by so many incarcerated peoples uh, and another one this one's called el casamiento which means marriage yesterday in my cell my pal asked man don't you want to marry life forever and i answered why marry life if I can't divorce, death. Mm. So this oppressive sense of mortality in the captivity, of the isolation uh, of the captive body uh, and the suffering.
2: It's a, a testament, too, to the the universality of... An experience that we tend to treat as particular, right? I mean, the, the the migrant or the so-called refugee experience gets, you know, a very small column in the the newspaper, or it gets treated as a kind of add on or a cognate to to more mainstream conversations. And there's something about one the brevity and obviously the power and the themes in the works that you just shared. I mean, you know, Olvido, for instance, in thinking about forgetting. I mean, the prison as design. As designed is meant to make you not see and forget these people, and so the idea that somebody behind bars is is literally forgetting themselves as you know a consequence of the prison's own makeup and design and um, power—it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Um, I'd I'd like if we can look at um, another poem and and maybe do a similar kind of move in terms of this connection. Um, This is a poem by. Gwendolyn Brooks, certainly someone who's far more known, certainly not forgotten, we're lucky to say, um, she wrote a poem in 1981 called To Prisoners.
6: Can you share that with us? Sure, I love her work. I call for you cultivation of strength in the dark, dark gardening in the vertigo cold, in the hot paralysis under the wolves and coyotes of particular silences, where it is dry, where it is dry. I call for you, cultivation of victory, over long blows that you want to give and blows you're going to get, over what wants to crumble you down, to sicken you. I call for you, cultivation of strength, to heal and enhance in the non cheering dark, in the many, many mornings after, in the chalk and choke. Hmm. What
2: sticks out to you about this? At least one thing.
6: A a deep empathy, a deep love for others, which is what poetry can lead us towards, to discovering Jacques Derrida, a French writer. Uh, Who loved poetry and wrote philosophy talks about poetry as a way of tracing the heart of the other. And it's certainly true in our workshop. We have children coming together from multiple nations, countries of origin, right? Converging on a table, maybe having overlapping histories in certain ways, socially, politically, or juridically within the carceral system, uh, and coming to seek uh, a better life, pursuing the so called American dream, and then in a workshop, exhausted, bleary-eyed, terrified often, uh, struggling to endure uh, the conditions of captivity, uh, coming together and connecting deeply. And the poetry is groping for that. She's reaching out to embrace the incarcerated reader, right? To call for him or her. And then also, like we talked earlier, the specifics of tropes in poetry. So here there's repetition that's so very, very powerful. And we saw it in Etheridge Knight too. And this use of repetition that arrests while also intensifying. And so I think it's the combination of the tropes with with that deep love that she's sharing so courageously. So we
2: have an intimate connection um, with prisons and incarcerated people, um, even when we don't always acknowledge it and it's it's no exaggeration to say that some of our most important breakthroughs in the world of letters are actually indebted to the thought work of those behind bars. I'm thinking, for instance, of someone like Martin Luther King, who wrote letter from a Birmingham jail, which was obviously a scathing, you know, critique of liberalism and liberal politics that had a variety of different. Um, affects and consequences in the ways that people thought about racism and its connection to seemingly, you know, political normalcy. I, I'm very curious to get your sense as somebody who spent a lot of time, you know, meditating and, and working in this area very deeply. You know, what's your sense of our appreciation of, you know, the prison as a place of knowledge production, as a bibliography that we already are dependent on? And, and is there some connection between the work that you're
6: doing now and that tradition of building a world of letters from the cage outward? It's inspiring me to think in multiple directions. The first thing, though, is probably a kind of warning to our listeners against um, romanticizing prison. There's real lived material violence against these bodies that's excruciating. That said, another important qualifier is to think carefully about the exceptionalism of these fabulous and deeply influential writers that course through our minds, even unknowingly to many, like Dr. King, um, in that not all people discovering new modes uh, of writing in prison are going to become canonical influential thinkers in transnational minds. Um, But that doesn't invalidate the importance of their prison writing experience, nor the significance of its contribution, even though it's more veiled or less visible or less known, right, Uh, it's still partaking in this crucial process it's a mode of discovery. And in discovery, one of the things that's discovered is the transformative power of language itself. And that is to say that we need to work against rhetorics that normalize the caging of humans. You know, many of the young poets in the workshop, they're realizing that through language, you can at least symbolically question the lived violence of captivity and start to work against those discourses that normalize it, where we say, ah, yes, these bodies need to have their rights suspended. They need to be removed from the social, relocated to this space that immures them, that captures them within walls, uh, and that incapacitates them, right? Is incarceration the best answer to migration? And and I think poetry can help us to find new language, to sort of discover what we might formulate as alternative modes of understanding and being.
2: Seth Michelson is a poet and a professor of Spanish at Washington and Lee University. He's also editor of the book of poetry called Dreaming America, Voices of Undocumented Youth in Maximum Security Detention.
1: Well, that's going to do it for us today. Do get in touch. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send us an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger.
0: Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for
5: Virginia Humanities.